Jesus doesn't change. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ is not a change. I'm going to back up and then come back on that in a moment. I, I asked something last night and it wasn't, I didn't get the answer I thought I'd get. So maybe it's not as normal a thing uh, as I thought it was. But if you could take yourself outside of Christian symbolism for just a moment, okay? So forget that Easter exists, not because it doesn't, but think like how most people have to live, okay? And then ask yourself, like, what is the, the emotional value of the word metamorphosis to you? What's that word mean? Now, I, I'm sure you have a picture of a butterfly in your head, right? Like it has to show up at some point in that story. What is metamorphosis? And if I ask you, so what is, what's the point of metamorphosis? Or, or, you know, I was driving to and from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I passed a, a health spa clinic where they're going to make you into a more beautiful person, and it was called Monarch. There's a big picture of wings behind the lady's smiling face. Like, what, what, what are they saying? What are they trying to get you to believe? When they say, you know, you can be a butterfly to the kindergartners. And I mean, if you want to shout an answer, go for it. But I, the answer that I think they're saying is they're trying to say you can change if you want to. Of course, pay me to tell you how, right? But it's th still the message. that If you want to, you can change. And instead of being that, what, fat, gross little caterpillar, you know, um, you can be this amazing, glorious butterfly. And you know, I, this isn't exactly the Bible, but it's definitely going to hit. So bear with me. Uh, it, I read a book this week as well that was talking about this, this very idea that the butterfly is a metaphor for what Americans often hope they can be in life. It's kind of a strange one if you think about what butterflies actually are. So a caterpillar is like 95% of the butterfly's timeline, right? So you're going to live your life mostly as the caterpillar. And the caterpillar, all it's going to do is eat and get fat until it falls asleep and kind of crawls in a hole and eats itself to death, which is amazing. Again, God designed that, right? You want to talk evolution right now? Fun times with butterflies. But again, do I want to be one, right? Metaphorically. And then, well, but the, then the payoff, right? The chrysalis, out I come and I've got beautiful wings. And yeah, two weeks of sex and then you die. I'm not kidding. That's, that's the butterfly. It, it is the mating form. It, it transforms into a mating form and then dies. And they want to sell you that as what you should be. Now, what does that have to do with the transfiguration of Jesus Christ? Well, the word transfigured in Greek is the word metamorpho. Metamorphosis. And here's the thing. So what is metamorphosis? That's what I want to preach about to you today. What is the metamorphosis of Jesus? And what does that mean for the metamorphosis of you inside of Jesus? And I have to tell you, it has nothing to do with butterflies because the use of the word metamorpho to describe butterflies is from like monks in the 14th century or something, right? Scientists using Greek and Latin to describe their stuffs. 
And they, they use all these words, but it has nothing to do with what the word really used to mean. It just takes its meaning and imports it on the butterfly. But the old meaning was very simple, very simple, um, to change appearance. Not to change. That's what I want to drive home here. To change appearance. And so starting with our Lord Jesus Christ then, let's get to it in the text. We're just going to read the story into this word though, but at the word we'd come right back where we were. Chapter 17, verse one, right? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was metamorphosed before them. His face shone like the sun his clothes became as white as the light. And then and the story goes on. Uh, morph is a word that is like, again, form, what it looks like, what you can see and touch. And Meta, you know, if you like Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, his company is called Meta now because he knows ancient Greek roots are very valuable for understanding things. Honestly, he probably does. Meta, it, it means like above reality. It's like superior or floating over or around, or it's bigger than just the small. It's a very complicated and valuable word. It's it's a wide meaning. So to to metamorph is to have your appearance appear to change. But again, it's not change. And and this is what I want to drive home is the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ doesn't get up there and be like, well, uh, you know, I, I was a man, but I could become a God when I feel like it. No, he was just like, so you all know. Let me like just... Open a crack and let you see what's inside. Puts it back inside. But all of this is there in the cradle, right? On the cross, in the Holy Supper, which then means inside of you. So now, at risk of getting too far ahead of myself, let's talk about your metamorphosis in Christ, your repentance and forgiveness in the church of the living God. I think Christianity has a lot to offer the world that's looking for change. I think it means we start with what we know as Christians, which is that as sinners, we're not going to change. That is, we're not going to stop being sinners. We can stop doing terribly wicked things. In fact, most people don't do terribly wicked things, you know, mass murders and stuff like that. Uh, so, so we cannot do those things. We're not really generally like that unless driven to it by a crowd or by starvation or something like that. And most humans just kind of want to get along with, with their own. No. But again, we are sinners in the sense that when we try to get along, we break stuff. I fix my land, it hurts your land, that kind of thing, right? And, and that is sin. Sin is as simple as just making a mistake and it is horrible as you know, ruining your life. We have to understand it's not going away. And the only way we are destroyed by it isn't by we stop. It's by he protects us. So the change that Christianity has to offer the American world, the the sinful world, is not the change they want, which is that they get to stop being whatever they were. But instead of change, what Christianity gives is growth that what you are and were is now more than what it was, but without taking away. And this is why you're Christian, not only a sinner, but a 
saint. Right? You're more than you even appear all the time. And when it shows, when it shines, isn't when like your face explodes in fire. That'd be fun. You know? uh, but it's, it's actually when you, when you love each other. When you forgive another person. I had another moment this week, and then we'll go back and go hard on text. But another moment this week where I was able to wrestle someone in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu who was bigger and better than me but hadn't done it for quite a while. And what was made this especially uh, fun was that it was after he had brought out of me a conversation about Jesus in which he very clearly didn't like what I had to say. And so there was a sort of like, like, like your religion, not so much guy thing. And then, hey, you want to like fight? And so we did. And um, the best part of it all was that he actually cracked some of the cartilage in my rib. We had to stop. Like he twisted me. It was my own fault. I, I know not to be this person. Chloe did it to me once. So like really, if Chloe can do it. You know, <laughs> sorry, Chloe. I don't mean it like that way. But like lightweight compared to me, right? And so she's pretty tough. You go ahead and wrestle her if you want. Um, so the car cracks. I'm like, oh, we're done. We're done. And he got so apologetic. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. And there was just, I was just like, you do it. It's, it's really okay. It's really okay. I, I, and some of that's what, you know, in, in, when, you, when you hurt yourself enough wrestling, you get used to stuff. But, but some of it was also like this moment where, look, I, I was thinking in my head, dude, you just were so rude to me. And you know what? I'm glad to forgive you. And I didn't plan that. I didn't prepare for that. I don't, I'm, I'm not even wanting that to be a boast. I want to suggest to you, Jesus promises he's just going to gradually feed that to you. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. That's what the study of the scripture is. It goes in and then it just starts to come out. And this is pretty key. I mean, if, if, if your funnel for the Bible going in is this big and your funnel for the world going in is this big, well, you're just going to have little peep squeaks coming out, you know, pip squeak coming out. So, you know, how do you fight back? You fight back with discipline. That's a different thing, though. Let's start again with, you're not going to change, but Jesus has bought you, and you belong to him now. And he is going to grow you into what you are supposed to be. And truly, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the promise of his kingdom, right? And as I said before, a lot of it is repentance and forgiveness repentance, and forgiveness. Hey, would you not do this thing? Yes. I'm sorry. I won't do it anymore. It seems so hard in the moment when you've been told you always do this, right? It feels so hard. But repentance is, do I always do this? Oh, I may, I, in fact, I do. I'm sorry. I'm going to try not to. And three days later, it happens again. And they say, you did it again. What do you say? I do do this. I'm sorry. That path of growth, when you're in conversation with those you love about how we treat each other, is love. That's what it is. And Christians have it in abundance, again, because of our continuity with him, his story, his reality. The fact that when our dark stories come together and get too loud, his resounds with the loud, he is risen. Alleluia. Which is why then, let's go back to the text, verse three, Peter kind of gets this, right? Moses and Elijah show up and verse four, Peter gets excited. 
Peter sees some of what this means, yeah? And he has all the fullness of the Old Testament promises to Solomon definitely inside of his head. But at the same time, let's not go too fast. Fast Moses and Elijah there. Why are Moses and Elijah there? Isn't that weird? Like, there's a bunch of other guys in the Old Testament, right? Isaiah? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Abraham? Why Moses and Elijah? Uh, I think... The scholarly answer is, well, it's kind of Torah and histories, right? So if you look at the Old Testament as a whole, you kind of have two biggest time periods and then after the exile, but there's no new scripture really quite. There is a little, but um, you have the period of Moses, Exodus, before promised land, and then you have the period after that. And in those two periods, the prophet who not said the most or is most memorable for his, his, uh, his preaching, uh, but the, the prophet who frankly just did the most stuff to the world is Moses and Elijah. Like in terms of, Elisha comes after Elijah and gets all these like double miracle things, but it's only because of who Elijah was. So, you know, even Elisha being more powerful is just sort of like a shadow of Elijah. Right? And then Moses again, you know, the staff and the sea and all this stuff, right? manna from heaven. So that's why is that in the history of the world, so as far as we have recorded evidence uh, that is even remotely historical, and ours is quite historical, uh, there are only like a couple of guys with this kind of magic, if we can say it that way, right? This kind of staff-wielding sorceress power of property from God. And what's Jesus been doing all this while down in the plains, right? All the same stuff. All the exact same stuff. So now we got like a little battle of prophets going on, right? One, two, three, look at them here. Who's the greatest? And Peter's response is exactly what we need to learn, huh? which is Jesus isn't just a prophet. This ain't just a prophet. No. His face shines like the sun. There's two other guys. And Peter says, let's build a tent for each of you. Now, I've heard guys attempt to, to validate Peter, that Peter has like a good reason and we should not be hard on him here, but I don't see it. I really don't. Um, Peter has a strange action to want to permanently put new worship spaces there. It's got to be to Jesus, but he doesn't see how Moses and Elijah are, in fact, dead. They're dead. These are their, I don't know, spirits physically manifested for a moment. Elijah was taken to heaven alive in a fiery chariot. They're they're not here. And and Peter does think they're going to be. He really thinks like Jerusalem is over. This is the new temple. We'll set this place up and the world will come to hear Moses, Elijah, and Jesus speak under Jesus, of course. But again, uh, the, the father in heaven repudiates Peter here, which how many times does this guy talk? Not many, not many, not like this. Uh, he says, well, while he was still speaking, verse five, we'll go there. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. I want to dwell on the cloud just for a moment. You know, I know you've probably been in fog or in some sort of driving scenario where you just can't see far enough ahead and you got to slow down, right? It's just, it's just too much cloud. Yeah? And then 
perhaps you've been in that kind of scenario where it's also a very bright cloud, right? It's actually daytime and the cloud is foggy and heavy and the rain is everywhere and, it's, and you can't see so well. You even got to put your sunglasses on. It's so bright. That can maybe kind of give you a feeling of what this was like. But, but what it also wants to call to mind for us definitely is Mount Sinai, you know, the glory of the fire on Mount Sinai. And however you imagine power in its like essence, right? Energy in its essence. Well, well, glory is like bigger than that, right? God creates light. And whatever electricity actually is, you know, it's related to God's creation of light, energy in some way, right? And, and glory isn't created. Like it's, it's uncreated. It, it is it's greater, right? So the glory of this cloud is beyond our imagination in many ways. Yeah. Um, I think we should take it to mean very clearly it wasn't a pleasant experience, though. Like this wasn't like, ah, happy, you know. It was a little more like, this is incredible, like more like that, right? Which not everyone wants adrenaline pumping, heart pounding, fun, right? Kids do. <laughs> not every old man does. Uh, what he says is really what's so important here, right? This is not a prophet. This is my son. And, and I love him because he's good enough, actually, right? You know that little inkling in your heart that you're not good enough? You just kind of have that story. You're not good enough. And, and the fact is, like, so far as judgment is concerned, that you, you're on to something there. You're not good enough. But Jesus is. And the beauty of this story is that so you are. Because Jesus chose you to be one with him. So now you don't get to any longer think that you're not being good enough for judgment day means you're not good enough for today. And then you can start to think about how today is judgment day. And the more you look at it that way, the less all of it matters so much. There's just a reason to love everyone around you since it's all going to get better soon. Why not? One of the best things said to me by, oh, there were so many good things said to me by other pastors at this conference. I think the best one was, I'm going to save that girl. And he was talking about a woman in a battered situation. And I was like, you do it. Get involved. Uh, one of the other great things that was said to me by a guy from out in Wyoming, he said, what is up with the zero-sum game? And that'll take a little explain. It's a mathematical proposition, but it's the idea that there's not enough. There's not enough. So if I take some, then you lost some, right? If I get some, you lost some because there's only so much. It's called a zero-sum game. And look, yeah, sure, I'm pretty sure if you go into business like selling cogs, it's kind of a zero-sum game. But God's creation is not a zero-sum game. It's what's called a positive some game because God is creating all the time, sustaining all the time. He is always capable of making whatever he wants. And so what the pastor was saying to me is, why are we Missouri Synod pastors, churches, congregations, districts, and so forth, all so concerned about money as if there's not enough, that zero sum game, we're in the kingdom of God, the positive sum game where let's go do good and believe God will give us what it needs, what we need to do good. To trust in him that he is the one in charge, not us. That he didn't give us a little playground and say, good luck, everybody. But instead he said, I am with you. 
to save you. Huh? And again, he has the authority to say this because transfigured on the mountain, the father testifies a witness. That's what the Peter text is about. The father witnessed that Jesus is enough. The person who says, and I know this answer won't work in that conversation. I just had it on a jujitsu mat. The person who says, you know, why Jesus? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. Just him. Like, this answer doesn't satisfy them right away, but this is the answer. Why, Jesus? Because the Father spoke out of heaven and said, Jesus, that's why. And we killed him and he rose again. I mean, do you need more proof? How much proof do you need for Jesus Christ? Oh, they made the book up. Okay, whatever. You're living in a candy land if you say that. You don't know history. The book's not made up. The book's as accurate as Caesar's wars. And we know that from history. You go study history, you can find that out. So the power of this that Christ has chosen you huh, to grow you as part of him in this age by your knowledge that God is for you and not against you. And that's it. It's simple. A child can write this down. Remember that. God's for you, not against you. Jesus is on your side. He goes with you wherever you go. Yeah. The disciples, as they're getting all of this in Revelation, though, listen to Jesus, you know, listen to Jesus. Uh, it does terrify them. Verse 6. They heard it and they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. You know, I mean, when you hear God the Father speak, you know, it, it is terrifying. That's why Jesus, as the mediator between us and the eternal glory, is, is the gift of God to us, right? And the mystery of the Trinity's revelation in three persons kind of makes sense if the Father's like all-consuming fire God, right? Like, 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 why would he not want to have an, a son who is more like us? I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, again, within that mystery of three and one. That said, they're afraid of the father for good reason. Jesus came, verse seven, and touched them. I love this. I'm cowering on the ground in a fire God's terror. I don't know what to do. And not, hey, Jonathan, get up. But someone touches me, right? Puts a hand on me. I'm going to look up. And, and now again, they looked up and they saw nothing but Jesus only. I jumped at the punch there. Right? The touch, look, and it's him. Not the fire, not the glory, just the guy they walked up the mountain with. And he's like, hey, hey, I was, I was just showing you. <laughs> just letting you in on it. And by the way, don't tell anybody. <laughs> we'll get back to that in a moment here. They fell on their faces afraid. Jesus came and touched them, verse 7, and said, arise. In Matthew, there's a lot of puns with the word resurrection. Jesus will say, get up a number of times and it's the same word. So just don't miss that here. Like he's always like, so rise from the dead soon. You know, he kind of throws that in there. And today though, be not afraid. Or maybe better to say, cease being afraid. Let, let your fear go. Let me have it. Let me have it. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only, stealing the punch. There's a little book in the bookstore, I believe, still called The Hammer of God. It's quite a read. Uh, it's about uh, a parish in Sweden over three generations. And all the, it's, it's not like a little kind of fun one. It's about the challenges that they faced um, socially, culturally, intellectually from things like rationalism and pietism, which those are big sounding words, but the point of the story is like you, you get to kind of live in it a little bit and see what it felt like. In any case, I'm stealing this little hook 
from that book because what I'm going to do next is what the guy does in that book, which is he has to preach on this text and he doesn't quite have an understanding in his own heart that it is up to Jesus only. And in the story, he gets, he's kind of broken down and he's, he's this like very zealous and powerful preacher who's, who's trying to change things. He doesn't like the old preacher. And, uh, um, but he has this kind of, uh, come to Jesus moment where he finds his own sin and nothing is good enough. And he's supposed to preach and he's not ready. He's had this, everything's falling apart. He doesn't have a sermon ready. And he stumbles upon a book of old sermons and it's on the text. And he goes out and he, he doesn't know what to do. He just starts reading it. He doesn't even, he doesn't tell them he's doing anything. He just starts reading it. But by the end he's preaching it and, it, and it's what he needs. And it's on this text. It's on this text. So I commend the story to you. It's, it's incredibly well-written, and it will give you law and gospel. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, The Hammer of God. But so it just is this, though, again. Whenever anything else is terrifying you, whenever the world is around you, whenever there is a destruction coming upon you, you must simply remember that Jesus only is behind it, and that when it is past, Jesus only will be with you, and that on the day that is to come, Jesus only will smile upon you and say, good and faithful servant. That there is no one who has control of your future, but Jesus only. That there is no one who loves you like Jesus only. That there is no one who will ever go to the ends of the earth for you like Jesus only has already done. Do you see what I'm doing? Jesus only. It is so pure and true, always for you. Whatever fear, whatever anger, whatever terror, whatever hurry, whatever hurt, Jesus only has seen it. He's seen all of it. I haven't. You haven't. He has. He's seen all of it. He's been there and he's never once not felt it with you. Not that that's enough. It's not about how Jesus feels it with you, but feeling it with you, he is there and pushing you through it. You're still here, are you not? How did you get here? Jesus only. That's how. He's your God. That's what he revealed at the transfiguration. He revealed it so that he could die as God. With no mistakes about it. So that he could rise as man and God, your king, your brother, your friend, uh, one with us. Jesus only. I commend you the book. The sermon in the book's better. Uh, verse 9. They came down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man rises from the dead. Weird, you know, it's weird. Uh, scholars who've been studying Mark and Matthew have been arguing about this. They call it the Markin secret, right? The Markin secret. Why? Mark does it a lot. Matthew does it like once or twice. Uh, and so they, they blame Mark. <laughs> uh, but it's Jesus is all like heals a blind guy. He's like, so don't tell anyone. Like, and he goes and tells everybody. I mean, how can he not? He's, he's, I can see. Wow, this is a weird experience. You can see? What do you mean? <laughs> uh, so, like, why is Jesus always asking people to stay quiet? And the answers that, that I've read about, none of them really satisfy. So it's just kind of, it is a mystery here, right? I'm, I'm kind of ending on a putter. But um, the answer that they give is that you can't stop the message. And Jesus is demonstrating that. It's like a, it's like a, uh, a metaphor lesson. Right, so Jesus is going to show how the gospel can't be stopped by saying stop, and it'll still go. I, I, that just doesn't get me. That one doesn't get me. Um, 
What I'm, I think what I can give you that does get me is this. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man rises from the dead. What do you think they heard? Because like for several chapters now, he's been like, so I'm going to die and rise from the dead? And Peter's like, no, you're not. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man rises from the dead, right? Is it really about how he doesn't want anyone to know? And we can question that. What is the mystery of God? I don't, I don't know. But what I know is this. He's like, hey, I'm not here for this. I'm not here to cast out demons. I'm not here to heal diseases. I'm not here to transfigure. I'm here to die. So let's just not get in the way of that. I think that's more of his direction here. He wants us to see how Luke in language here, like Flint, his face is pointed toward the cross and he is going to go there for you, for you. Jesus only, our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And again, he will join us now, one in body and blood to send you on your way confident no weapon forged against you shall stand in the name of Jesus. Amen.